Crosspoint Church's weekly sermon audio from lead pastor Brad Evangelista. For more information about Crosspoint, visit InsideCrosspoint.com. Amen. I love that song. Good morning. Open your Bibles to John chapter 1, please. John chapter 1. We started a few weeks ago a series through the Gospel of John. And we're going to finish up chapter 1 this morning, Lord willing. So uh, we're going to pick back up where we left off last week on verse 35. As you're finding it, let me just uh, again piggyback. I want to encourage you to come out tonight if you're able to our Sunday night study that we're starting back up. If you're wondering kind of what that feels like and what the setting is, it's very informal. And I just kind of preach verse by verse or teach verse by verse. We're going to start, do a little bit of intro and then look at the first part of Galatians. And it's a real informal time where we also kind of open it up for Q&A, do a little prayer. Usually lasts about an hour and 15 minutes or so. So we'd love to have you here at six o'clock tonight. So John is, as you know, the fourth gospel. And one of the things that I've just noted, and I'm, I'm just excited about this morning because the genre of John is different from, say, for example, the genre of literature of Galatians that we'll look at tonight and that we've been in in Second Peter before we got into John. Those are epistles that are full of propositional truths that state things and they're tightly packed doctrine that you have to unpack and, and think about systematically more. But the Gospels is a type of narrative form of literature or genre, and it's a kind of unfolding story. And so for that reason, I think it's probably better for us to just look at at least this passage and maybe a lot of John, just kind of work through it verse by verse, and then at the end circle back around and consider some truths or some reflections that we can apply to our lives. So let me give you a little bit of a, of a, of a bearing, if you're with us for the first time today or you're visiting, to give you a little bit of bearing of where we are so far in John. John is the fourth gospel. It's a bit different from the other three Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Those are what we call the synoptic Gospels, and that's a word that just means that those three sort of see things together. There's a kind of unity in a sense. There's a unity, obviously, to all of the Bible, but there's a bit more of a chronological harmony of the first three Gospels that follow a sort of chronological timeline. Whereas John is more concerned with making spiritual points about Jesus. And one of the things that John is particularly concerned about all through his gospel is the divinity, the lordship, the sovereignty of Jesus as God in the flesh. And as we progress through John, we'll see through how John's gospel really revolves around Seven I am statements that Jesus makes that really is a clear designation that he is God in the flesh. But this morning, we find ourselves finishing chapter 1, and to give you a, a, a setting or a, a sense of the setting of John 1 is that the first 18 verses were a prologue, a kind of tightly packed theological introduction where John is basically saying, this is what this gospel is going to be all about, that Jesus is God in the flesh, and he's come to make God known. And then what we looked at last week was the, the witness, the testimony, the ministry of John the Baptist. It's a kind of transition moment where John is now saying, here he is, behold the one, the lamb who takes away the sin of the world. 
And now John is going to begin to fade out of the scene. In fact, we're not going to hear about John the Baptist again until just a brief mention of him again in John chapter 3, and that's it. John the Baptist fades from the scene, and now we see Jesus' first interactions with his disciples, people here at the end of John chapter 1. Now, just again, a little clue, just because sometimes it can be hard as you're just sort of hearing things audibly. John the Apostle, who is the author of this gospel account, is different from John the Baptist, who is at times referred to specifically in our passage. So there's two different Johns. Uh, in fact, John the Apostle never refers to himself by name in his gospel, which is a kind of stunning act of humility, uh, really. But let's, let's get into it. Let me pray, and then let's work through this verse by verse, and we're going to circle back around at the end and piece it together. Lord, help us. We, we are so privileged to be here with open Bibles, beautiful weather, air conditioning, seats, lights, amplification, we're privileged people. Don't I pray that these blessings would not lull us to sleep or make us cranky or cynical or selfish. We think of our brothers and sisters around the world who don't have these things, who are in much worse situations than we are. Lord, bless them, encourage them. I think of other Bible-preaching churches in our city. Bless them, encourage them. May many souls come to faith in Jesus today in this Chattahoochee Valley because of the preached word. Do that here as well. Help us to see Jesus. As we read this text about Jesus calling his first followers, may we understand what it means to follow Jesus better. For my brothers and sisters in this room, make us more like Christ. For unbelievers in this room, save them, Lord, by your sovereign grace. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Let me start in verse 35. So again, we're transitioning away from John. He said, behold, the Lamb of God. And now he's with his disciples. The next day, again, John, John the Baptist, was standing with two of his disciples. And he looked at Jesus as he walked by and said, behold, the Lamb. Now, again, we read that at the end of our text last week in verse 29, where it was a bit more of a public exclamation of John, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world before whoever was standing before him, the crowd that he was preaching to. But here he is speaking it more specifically to two of his disciples who are with him. And Jesus is coming. He said, behold the Lamb of God. And I just, yeah, I, I probably got more comments or feedback from you, from people in the congregation last week when I made that comparison or that, 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 that uh, point about the clarity, the boldness of John the Baptist here in the first chapter of John saying, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. But we read about John the Baptist later in his life in Matthew chapter 11 when he's thrown in prison and he's about to have his head taken off for his preaching of righteousness to Herod. And he has this moment of kind of wondering, reflection, maybe even we can call it doubt, where he sends his disciples to ask Jesus, are you the one or should we expect another? And the point that I just cannot get over is that even bold John the Baptist struggled at times with doubt. And isn't that wonderfully comforting? Verse 37, the two disciples heard him say this and they followed Jesus. Just very simple, no, not much detail at all. They heard John say this, and they followed Jesus. It's just a kind of simplicity to it. No jealousy on John's part. In fact, this was the point of John's ministry, that he would point away from himself 
to Jesus, which John becomes a kind of wonderful picture of gospel ministry and humility for all of us. It makes me think of Paul's words in Colossians chapter 1 where Paul is telling us what the heartbeat of every minister, whether vocational or just ordinary Christian, a lay person in the church, this should be the heartbeat of every church, every ministry. Colossians 1 verse 28 and 29, Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. For this I toil, struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. And just be wary of, of ministries, churches, pastors uh, that talk too, too much about all the good things that they're doing. Uh, yes, on some level, it's appropriate, I guess, to let people know what's going on, to encourage them, to spur them on to love and good deeds. But, but often, I think in our sort of American church culture, it's really a kind of indulgent self-absorption, and beware of that. Beware of that, and that's the opposite direction John is headed here. He, he says Jesus is the one, and his disciples leave him and follow Jesus. So, verse 38, Jesus turned and saw them following and said to them, what are you seeking? So again, there's a kind of real simplicity and clarity to this, but yet I want you to notice this, and I think this is clearly intended by John. There's a sort of simplicity to it, a kind of matter-of-factness about the interactions of Jesus with these early disciples, but yet there also clearly seems to be a kind of double meaning that John is wanting to draw out. So, verse 38 again, Jesus turned and saw them following and said to them, what are you seeking? And they said to him, Rabbi, which means teacher, where are you staying? So Jesus asked them, what are you seeking? And, and on, the, on the kind of surface level, it's like, what, 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 do you guys, what do you guys want? But there's obviously something deeper that Jesus is drawing out. That's the question that he's asking all of us. What are you seeking? What do you, what do you really want? And these disciples ask him, or respond to him, where are you staying? So on the surface, you know, there, it's a kind of, uh, transactional, physical exchange. Where are you going? Where are we going? What's your address? Where, where are we going? What part of the city are we going to? But obviously, there's something deeper intended here by John, the gospel writer, when they ask him, where are you staying? In other words, what are you about? Where are you taking us? We're about to go on this grand journey here. What's happening? And that seems to be clearly intended by John. Verse 39, he said to them, Come and you will see. So they came and saw where he was staying, and they stayed with him that day, for it was about the tenth hour. Again, there's this kind of implicit, underlying, cryptic message that Jesus is drawing his disciples in. Come, he doesn't tell them all, but just come, just follow me. It's a kind of early picture of what faith is. We come, we follow Jesus. We don't know exactly where he's going to take us or how we're going to get there, but we come and we see and we follow Jesus. And they stayed with him that day for it was about the 10th hour, which I guess would have been probably about four o'clock in the afternoon. Verse 40, one of the two who heard John speak and followed Jesus was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. Now, one of the two, uh, the other one was very likely 
John, the apostle, the writer of this gospel, that's what kind of the historic sort of witnesses here, the, the, the historical um, opinion is that this is John just not wanting to mention himself. In fact, John, as I said earlier, never mentions himself. He doesn't refer to himself in this account or throughout his whole gospel, which again, to me, is just stunning humility. Verse 41, he first found his own brother Simon, so this is speaking about Andrew, He found his own brother Simon and said to him, we have found the Messiah, which means Christ. So this phrase, Messiah, Christ, remember we talked about last week, about how you have to understand the mindset that the first century average Jew would have been in when they were thinking about the Old Testament promise of a Messiah. The Old Testament has been written and finished 400 years before Jesus shows up on the scene. And it was full of prophecies and and statements about this coming king. And when you think about this word Messiah, it's a word that means the anointed one, the one who will come, the one who is chosen. And embedded in this word Messiah is really three things, three roles in the nation of Israel. Oftentimes, the the Messiah or the anointed one in the Old Testament would be spoken of as the the priest, the one who is anointed for the task of going before God and the people to offer the sacrifice so that the people could be atoned for, their sin could be atoned for. Sometimes this word anointed or Messiah referred not only to the priest, but to the prophet, the one who spoke for God, who spoke on behalf of God. Like think Ezekiel and Isaiah, they were anointed for the task of speaking for God. But also this role of king, like King David, who is the one who rules over God's people. He was anointed. This word Messiah would be used to to describe the role of the king in the Old Testament. So think of these three roles, prophet, priest, and king, and they are all bound up in the person and work of Jesus. He's our priest. He goes before us to God. He speaks God's word, and he rules over God's people. But here's Here's the point about the first century mentality of the average Jewish person and certainly likely the mentality of these men that Jesus is interacting with here, these first disciples of Jesus. They were under Roman captivity. It had been 400 years since Malachi the prophet had spoke and they were captives in the, they were in the land that God had given them, but they had been sort of tossed to and fro from the Assyrians to the Babylonians to the Persians. And after some wars, now they find themselves under Roman captivity and in their hearts. And we need to be sympathetic to this. And this is probably one of the reasons that the average first century Jew missed who Jesus was is because they were zeroing in on the kingship aspect of Jesus's task, the prophecies that one would come and would free you from your enemies. And so they read that and read it as this one who's coming, this Messiah, this anointed one is a political leader who is going to finally free us from our earthly political captors, which is Rome. When in reality, 
as we read the rest of the Gospel of John and really the rest of the New Testament for that matter, the Bible, the Gospel, the good news of the New Covenant is that God has come to do something far greater than rescue us from political turmoil or captivity, but to rescue us from spiritual captivity. Our problem is never ultimately Caesar. Our problem is sin. And these, these early disciples here, when they say Messiah, you might think, well, they know it. Why do we have to do another 20 chapters of John? They know he's the Messiah. Well, they're speaking in this moment more truth than they actually know. And they're probably not fully understanding what Messiah means at this moment. Verse 42, he brought him to Jesus. So he's, he's gone to his brother, and he brought his brother to Jesus. Verse 42, he brought him to Jesus. Jesus looked at him and said, this is, this is a fantastic verse, you are Simon, the son of John. You shall be called Cephas, which means Peter. Now, a couple things here before we get into Peter's name change. Andrew brought his brother to Jesus. There's a kind of simplicity to that. Followers of Jesus just help other people follow Jesus, right? And he's bringing, each time Andrew's mentioned in the narrative, he's bringing someone to Jesus. We see that again later in chapter 6 and verse 12. Andrew just has this ministry of just bringing people to Jesus. And then we see that Jesus gives Peter a new name. His name was Simon, and Jesus gives him a new name. He says, you're, you're Simon, son of John, and you shall be called Cephas which means Peter. And what does that mean? Well, to, to give us a little context there, let's, let's flip over to Matthew chapter 16, a very important portion of Scripture, just to give us a, to color in a little bit the, 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 the sketch that John just gives her in, in just one verse of this interaction where Jesus just names Peter. He gives him this new name. So this is much later in the life and ministry of Jesus with his disciples in Matthew 16. And we, we get some coloring in the lines of what Jesus is up to when he just renames this guy. I mean, that's, an, that's a rather abrupt thing to do when you first meet somebody. I mean, think about it. Hey, I'm Simon. What's your, okay, good. You, I'm going to call you Peter from now on. <laughs> what, what, what? What? But we, we read the rest of the Bible, and we, we fill in the blanks a little bit about what Jesus is up to, to in this moment. So Matthew 16, verse 13 when, now, when Jesus came in the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? Again, so this is several years after this interaction that we read about in John 1. And they said, some say John the Baptist, others say, well, I'm not sure if it's several years, but it's sometime after. Let me just put it to you that way. Sometimes preachers say things when, they, when, they, when they're preaching, and they, they, I, I'm not sure how long it was, but it was after. I just need to edit that. And they said, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. And he said to them, but who do you say that I am? And Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, oh, verse 17 is so significant for our understanding of the grace and the sovereignty of God and salvation. And Jesus answered him, Blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah. Bar meaning the son of. So blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah. Flesh for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. In other words, 
the right acknowledgement of who Jesus is, the coming to faith, the, the understanding of who Jesus is, is not a matter of human intelligence. It's not something ultimately, it's not a math equation that we ultimately figure out. But even the most intelligent among us must have our blind spiritual eyes because of our natural state of sin open to us and given to us and revealed to us from God above. <laughs> so there are some of the smartest people in the world who are spiritually blind and dumb, if we can say. And some of the most humble, unacademic, blue-collar people in the world who are the wisest people in the world because God has opened their eyes. That's what we read this morning from 1 Corinthians 1. Not many of you are noble. And basically, Paul is saying, you guys are blunt. You guys are not the sharpest knives in the drawer. But yet God chose you anyway. So salvation is not a matter of human intelligence and rationale. It's a matter of sovereign grace. And he keeps going in verse 18. I'm not even to the point I want to make it. Verse 18, and I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. And so this word Peter is, his name Peter is a word that literally means rock, Petros, rock. And so in this first interaction with Peter, Simon, Jesus gives him a new name, which is a, which is a total act of authority. You don't just roll up to somebody and change their name unless you have total authority over them. And Jesus does that in his first interaction with Peter, and he signals to Peter here, this is what your name is going to be, and this is who you're going to be. You're going to confess me soon, and upon this faith, upon this rock, upon this confession, I will build my church, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. So, I mean, we're just doing historical narrative here. We're just setting the scene and embedded in verse 22 is just rich grace and truth of the gospel. And he says, you shall be called Cephas, which means Peter. Jesus gives Peter a new name. Whether Peter realized it or not, and clearly I don't think he fully did at the moment, his whole identity and future and destiny is changed by an interaction with Jesus. Verse 43, the next day Jesus decided to go to Galilee, and he found Philip and said to him, follow me. So he found Philip. The other times it mentions that the other disciples found Jesus, but this time, really in this account, it's the only time that it says that Jesus found somebody. What should we make of this? I don't think we should make much of this other than as we read the rest of the Gospel of John and really the rest of the New Testament we realize that really we don't find Jesus so much as first Jesus finds us, right? So a lot of times I think it's acceptable to say things like, when I found Jesus, I think that's okay to use those English words, so long as we realize that, that, that it's not like Jesus was hiding behind a corner and it was sort of our spiritual innate curiosity or desire 
that made us go looking for him. Underneath that, and we'll get to when we get to John 6, it's going to be so clear that underneath any finding of Jesus is the drawing of the Holy Spirit who brings us to him. And that's wonderfully good news because he goes after us first. And he finds Philip. Verse 44, now Philip was from Bethsaida, the city of Andrew and Peter. Now something interesting to note about Philip here is that he's mentioned in all the lists of the 12 disciples who eventually become the 12 apostles. He's always in fifth place behind Simon, Andrew, James, and John. But the other gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, give, or Matthew, Mark, and Luke, give no other information about him. The only time we really read anything about Philip is in the gospel of John on a few occasions. And what's interesting about Philip is every time Philip is mentioned, He's a little confused. He just kind of gets it wrong. And it's sometimes, you, I think in John chapter 12 it is, Jesus says, oh, you can almost see like, man, are you still not seeing who I am? One commentator says about Philip, some of the apostles were undoubtedly men of great ability, but Philip compels us to realize that there were perfectly ordinary people Jesus had and has such use for such followers. Oh, I'm strangely encouraged by that. Philip was a butter knife. <laughs> you remember a couple months ago I said something about butter knives and steak knives? And you know what, man? Butter knives... Butter knives are really, really useful. In fact, give me a platoon of butter knives and I'll take down a division of steak knives. Because steak knives are always trying to show everybody how sharp they are while better butter knives are just doing the work of spreading the jam. And so if you are a butter knife, which... I'm your pastor, and I love you, quite frankly, is most of us. Rejoice! Philip's kind of dense. But Jesus loves dense people. That's why we read 1 Corinthians 1 this morning. Not many of you are wise. Most of you are butter knives. And praise God for butter knives. Let's get a platoon of butter knives, and let's take on the world. Verse 45, Philip found Nathanael, who also uh, later on in other gospels is, is called Bartholomew. Philip found Nathanael and said to him, we have found him of whom Moses and the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. So Philip may have been a butter knife, but he did read his Bible. <laughs> and he was aware that there was something going on in Moses, meaning the, the Torah, the first five books of the Old Testament commonly referred to as the law and the prophets, which when the New Testament says the law and the prophets, it's kind of a kind of short phrase, which often refers to the whole Old Testament. And again, we're not exactly sure how developed Philip's understanding of who Jesus was at this moment is, but certainly he saw something and he was piecing together that there are the Old Testament, Moses and the prophets, the law, are speaking about 
Jesus. Again, very likely, it was a limited understanding, probably zeroing in on the kingship of Jesus that they were hoping for a political rule, but nevertheless, there's this recognition. And what I think we'll see in the Gospel of John is this progressive understanding of who Jesus is, which again is encouraging, because we don't get everything we need to understand about Jesus in our first encounter with him, right? I remember coming to Christ as a, uh, uh, an 18-year-old. I was late in my high school years. It was actually three months before I went away to the military academy. I was born and raised in Southern California. My brother had witnessed to me. I think I came to faith at a crusade. And then three months later, I was at West Point. And at my first day at West Point, I was getting hazed by this upper-class cadet, and he invited me to this little church plant right outside the gates of the academy in Highland Falls, New York, and it became a wonderful place of, of just growth for me. But I do remember, and this had nothing to do with the congregation or the preacher. It was really, I think, just the, the fear of man that existed in me. I can remember walking into that church for the first time, a baby Christian, and having this immediate sense that I needed to act like I knew more than I actually did. It was a kind of insecurity in me. Does anybody else have that? Any, anybody else kind of have struggle with the fear of man here? Or am I the only weak Christian among us? And I still do. I still do. I'm sad to report I've been a, I've been a Christian now for a while, since 1989. And there's still this lingering thing in me where I... I, I and there's this, the, 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 the reality of coming to Christ is that we, we barely know anything. And it's okay not to, so just something I want to say to people here, that if you're here, don't buy into that. If you're newer here and you just kind of think, oh, well, everybody kind of seems like they have it together. Dear one, I'm their pastor. They don't. They don't. We are a merry band of train wrecks. And so just, just be who you are where you are. And then let God progressively grow your understanding of who Jesus is and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ, as, as Peter says at the end of his letter. Verse 36, now Nathanael gets a little chesty here. And Nathanael said to him, can anything good come out of Nazareth? <laughs> Philip said to him, well, come and see. So I think this is just kind of a warning to us about cynicism and undervaluing the humility of where and how God can work. You know, we just sometimes we listen to people that have an accent and a briefcase from outside, you know, I mean, just like, like oh, he's, he's got a British accent, so he must know what he's talking about. Well, sometimes just a poor schmuck down the road knows what he's talking about too. And here there's a kind of, a kind of arrogance. Well, Nazareth, it's just, that's just a rival town. They don't know what, what, could, what could come out of there. Just a stunning, stunning picture of the humility of God that he would come from no place special. Verse 47, Jesus saw Nathanael coming toward him and said to him, Behold, an Israelite in whom there is no deceit. So I think Jesus' point here is not that Nathanael is sinless, but that even though he was just a little bit of a smart aleck about Nazareth, he's saying that this guy's got no guile. He's, 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 
he's, he's, he's kind of in a sense pure-hearted, not that he's sinless. He's, he's really kind of, he's, he's, he's wanting to know the truth. In verse 48, Nathanael said to him, how do you know me? And Jesus answered him, before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. Now, this is striking. On the surface, again, here's where I think John has some double meaning. On the surface, all Jesus tells him is, I saw you under the fig tree. Well, that could have been, well, just like yesterday, you were under the fig tree. And so, so there doesn't, on the surface, necessarily mean that there was anything spiritually significant about that. But the next verse, verse 49, Nathanael answered him, Rabbi, you are the son of God. You're the king of Israel. So there's something more significant going on here. Like if I came up to somebody and said, hey, Bob, uh, uh, I know you. And, and, and Bob has never met me before. And he says, well, how do you know me? Well, yesterday I saw you at the market. There would be nothing necessarily profound about that. But it seems like more is going on here. That whatever it meant that he was under the fig tree, I saw you, Nathaniel is struck by that, and it causes him to think of Jesus in a different category. Now, legend has it, and this is just legend and not scripture. This is just Christian tradition and not scripture. Maybe this is it. I don't know. But early Christian tradition had that Nathaniel was one of the babies in the first couple of years of Jesus' life when he was a baby, when the leader, when they were killing babies to try and, to try and uh, remember the prophecies at the beginning of Luke and Matthew about how Herod was killing baby Israelites because of this prophecy that the wise men gave him that there would be this baby that comes up to be the ruler of Israel. And legend has it that Nathaniel, being about the same age as Jesus, was hidden under a fig tree by his mother, and Nathaniel would have known about this, and that Jesus is speaking about that moment, which then clues Nathaniel to think there's something going on with this guy. Now, again, I want to say that's Christian tradition, that's not scripture, but whatever's going on here, Whatever Jesus was referring to, it clued Nathaniel into that this man that I'm talking to now is not just an average guy. He is, and he gives him three titles, Rabbi, you're the son of God, you're the king of Israel. What an interaction. In verse 50, Jesus answered him, because I said to you, I saw you under the fig tree, do you believe? You will see greater things than these understatement of the year. Jesus says, you will see greater things than these. And then verse 51, the end of our text, I mean a rich verse. Verse 51, Jesus said, and he said to him, this is Jesus speaking to Nathaniel, truly, truly. Now when Jesus says truly, truly, and it's, it's a phrase that he uses all throughout John's gospel, it's really a, a claim of, of divine authority. Nobody would speak like that except God. And really, all you need to say is just one truly, but Jesus has given it an extra truly. Truly, truly, or in other words, this is confirmed, or thus saith the Lord, truly, 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 I say to you, listen to this now, you will see heaven opened and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. What does he mean by that? And where does this picture come from? Well, this comes from 
a story, a scene in the life of Jacob in Genesis chapter 28. So let me flip to Genesis 28 and read to you what Jesus is referring to and how he is connecting his ministry with this scene in Genesis chapter 28. So Jacob, again, is this chosen son of Isaac, and he is, of course, a scoundrel in many ways, but he is, he is uh, the, the patriarch Jacob. And in verse 10 of Genesis 28, Jacob left Beersheba and went toward Haran, and he came to a certain place and stayed there at night because the sun had set. Taking one of the stones of that place, he put it under his head and lay down in that place to sleep. Now, I don't usually use stones as a pillow, but apparently they did in Genesis chapter 28. Verse 12, and he dreamed, and behold, there was a ladder set up on earth. So this is Jacob's dream, a ladder set up on earth, and the top of it reached to heaven, and behold, the angels of God were ascending and descending on it. And behold, the Lord stood above it and said, I am the Lord, the God of Abraham, your father, and the God of Isaac, the land on which you lie, I will give to you and to your offspring. And so there's this ladder, and at least in Genesis 28, at this point, all we can say about it is it is this vision in Jacob's dream where God is reassuring his man Jacob that I'm with you. That there's a connection between you and me. That the promises that I've made to your forefathers, I will bring to pass. And these angels ascending and descending, I think, are just simply a sign of the glory of God. That he will be with his people. That's the the promise of God. Even though sin has cut us off. Even though Israel is disobedient. Even though we still rebel against God. God, he will reconcile himself to his people and there will be this bridge where God will reestablish the relationship with his people and he has not given up on us yet. And that's just a shadow of this vision in Genesis 28. But now Jesus sheds further light for us on what that shadow means. He's saying that I am the ladder. This is what Jesus is clearly saying in verse 51. Truly, truly, I say to you, you shall see heaven open and the angels of God ascending and descending on what? Not just some unnamed ladder, but on the Son of Man. And so what is Jesus saying here? He is clarifying, he is crystallizing what was in shadow form in the Old Testament. He's saying that God will open up his mercy. God will be reconciled to his people. And the way that he will bring that reconciliation is through me, the ladder, the bridge. And the glory of God ascends and descends on the work of the Son who is God with us. Oh, what a beautiful picture. And I don't have the time because I, 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 I just don't have the time. But when Jesus refers to himself as the son of man, he is alluding to a text in Daniel chapter 7 where Daniel has this vision and he calls this ancient of days, meaning God the Father, who sends the son of man who comes, who has everlasting dominion over all things. 
And so here in 51, verse 51, Jesus is claiming to be the means by which God will reconcile himself to his people, and he is claiming to be God himself, the Son of Man, which was a title of deity, of divine lordship, meaning I am the everlasting to the everlasting. He's the gospel. He's the bridge. He's the ladder. That's the good news of the gospel, friends. We hear this, dear ones. We cannot make it to God on our own. Religion says, ascend to God. Religion says, make yourself right. Religion says, improve yourself. Climb up another rung on the ladder. But we can't. But the gospel says, God has come down so that we might go up. And the way we go up is through Christ. Not by our righteousness, not by our deeds, not by our works, but through the perfect life of Jesus the Son who died on the cross to bear the wrath of God on the cross and rise again in victory so that all who would trust in him and have faith in him, the ladder, the bridge, the mediator, can be reconciled to a holy God. This is the gospel in seed form in verse 51. When Jesus says, I'm the ladder, he's saying, I am the way, the only way, and the truth, the only truth, and the life, the only life. Listen to what Paul says in 1 Timothy 2, 5. For there is one God and there is one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. Colossians 1, 19. For in him... Meaning Jesus, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. And through him, and through him only to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. And you who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. Piece that together with this vision that Jesus is identifying as himself. He has come down to bear the wrath on the cross for us and pick us up and make us alive and then bring us up so that he might present us to God the Father. That's your destiny, dear one, if you're a believer in Jesus. You were dead in your sins. Jesus came down, died on the cross to take the penalty for your sins, scoop you up, make you alive, ascend with you, and present you before his Father for everlasting glorification and union with him in heaven forever. That's amazing. That's the gospel. That's the message of Romans. How will a righteous God save unrighteous people who can't make themselves righteous through the righteousness of Jesus? Hear me on this because I know we have lots of guests here, people that I don't know whether or not you truly know the gospel. You need to know this, that the message of the Bible is essentially this, that God is our sovereign creator who is utterly and unfathomably holy and good. And he has created you, and for reasons that we cannot fully understand, he has allowed us in our humanity, even though we were created in the image of God, to rebel against him, to fall, and our fall into sin, which all of us have participated in, 
has caused us to be spiritually dead and separated from God. And there's nothing we can do in ourselves to make ourselves right with God. But God did not leave the world in that sinless, helpless estate. He came to us in the form of Jesus the Son, God the Son, fully man, fully God, and lived a perfect life and laid down his perfect sacrifice on the cross to bear, to satisfy, to absorb, to extinguish, to remove all of the punishment for all of the people that would trust in him. And you might say, well, how can we trust in him if we're spiritually dead? That's where the gospel gets even better. God doesn't command us to do something. He doesn't, he doesn't expect us to do something that we can't do. His command to believe creates in us what it calls for. And when God saves a person, he makes them alive and he gives them a new heart so that they can believe and they can cling to Jesus and ascend the ladder and be with God forever. And hear me, dear ones, if you don't know the Lord, that's your only hope that God would do that for you. And the fact that you're hearing this, the fact that you're here today, the fact that you are hearing this gospel is God's kindness to you. Now the question is, will you believe this, that your only hope is in Jesus and not yourself? You can't be saved by your righteousness. The Bible says that your righteousness, your good intentions, your works are a filthy rag before God. And your only hope is the righteousness of Christ before a holy God. So turn from trusting in yourself and put your hope in Jesus. That's what it means to be a believer. Let me hurry on. Four quick reflections on what it means to follow Jesus. One, part of following Jesus is helping others follow Jesus. I think that just sort of stands out as clear from this text. You know, all these, these brothers, these friends, they were just, hey, they were getting their friends, come and follow Jesus. Friends, this is how I came to faith. I grew up in a nominal Christian home, which means we were Christian by name only. We didn't really know the Lord. We went to a very, very liberal, Protestant, mainline denomination in my hometown that did not preach the gospel. The pastor got up every Sunday and he told little stories about his dogs and, you know, he basically could have been reading from Reader's Digest. No gospel. The building was called a church, but there was no gospel. My brother, my older brother, my only sibling, went away to college, heard the gospel, got saved, came back, and over the course of about three or four years, just started to share the gospel with me. And I can remember one particular interaction with him where I said, Todd, I, I am a Christian. And he said, oh, oh no. No, you're, no, you're not. No, you're not. And he just kept sharing Jesus with me. And I remember I was having a lot of frustrations with him and his witness. And my parents had a friend, I think I've maybe told you this story, who was a child psychologist. And they actually sent me like a clandestine, hey, why don't you go see Mrs. So-and-so? Just talk to her. It was actually a sort of subversive counseling appointment that they set up for me. And I can remember she was asking me what my angst was with my brother, and I remember actually these words coming out of my mouth. I was probably a junior or senior in high school, and I said, 
you know, my brother's just getting on my nerves. He keeps talking to me about being a born-again Christian. I mean, isn't that silly? I mean, I'm a, this is what I said to her. I'm a Christian. I'm just not one of those born-again types of Christians. (laughs) And shortly thereafter, God opened my eyes to the reality of my sin, to the reality of my hope was not in my relative goodness, but it was in Christ alone. And it was just because of my brother, who was just an average guy, who was following Jesus and he was helping, trying to help me follow Jesus. Spurgeon says, if you're saved yourself, be on the watch for the souls of others. Your own heart will not prosper unless it is filled with intense concern to bless your fellow men. The life of your soul lies in faith. Its health lies in love. He who does not pine to lead others to Jesus has never been under the spell of love himself. Get busy doing the work of the Lord, the work of love. Begin at home. By the way, you mothers staying home with your babies, you're evangelists. You're helping your little heathen children follow Jesus, right? Bring the gospel to them. They need it. Nobody's born a Christian. We're born again as Christians. Begin at home. Visit your neighbors next. Enlighten the town or the street where you live. Scatter the word of the Lord wherever your hand can reach. Come on, everybody's an evangelist. Every Christian is called to be on some level an evangelist, a missionary. Just just invite people to church. You don't know that much? You know what? Some of these cats in this passage had been followers of Jesus for literally minutes, and they were just bringing people to Jesus. Two, there are, I don't think this is necessarily stated clearly in the text, but I think we'll see it throughout John, and I think it bears stating when we're talking about following Jesus that there are always obstacles to following Jesus. Always. Now, what we've just read at the end of John chapter 1 is pretty, it's pretty simple. There's not many details, but we read in the other Gospels where these men were in the middle of maybe some fishing expedition, and they dropped their nets and they followed Jesus, which obviously came at great cost to them. The point is, is that there are always obstacles to following Jesus. The first obstacle to following Jesus is our dead hearts that Jesus must make alive. But even after he makes our hearts alive, there is this residual remaining sin in all of us that is like an excuse factory that will come up with all sorts of reasons why we can't really radically follow Jesus in a biblical way. And we all have this. Maybe it's some past hurt. Maybe it is something that's been done to you. And what I notice about our souls, about my soul, about, about the residual of sin in me, is we are so quick to run to and cling to that thing as the thing that legitimizes our lazy discipleship. And say, oh, but you don't know, I, I, I went through this. And it just cuts us off from just, just clearly following Jesus. I know we all have challenges, we all have challenges, and some of us Our challenges are actually our options. Some of us are so blessed that our blessings, air quotes, are actually our obstacles. We as American Christians have so many other legitimate things that we can do that it just crowds out simple obedience. 
It just does. More money, more problems. More sanctification problems. Some of the healthiest spiritual people are just some of the people that just really, it's like Peter and we'll get to John chapter 6. A bunch of people were leaving Jesus because his message was too hard and Jesus, Jesus says, are you guys going to go too? And Jesus, Peter just says, where else could we go? You know, that's a good place to be, to just not have any options. And the average American Christian, and probably some in this room, some of us just have so many options. So many other things we could do and give our time to, other than just serving the Jesus humbly with a bunch of other people in a local church, a kind of humble existence. Dear ones, hear my heart on that. There are always obstacles to following Jesus. Three, Jesus knows everything about us but calls us anyway. I mean, he knows that Nathaniel's a little bit of a smart aleck. He knows that Simon Peter is going to be so hot-headed that he's going to chop a guy's ear off in the garden right before Jesus is resurrected. You've got problems with anger? Simon Peter's your guy. He chops a dude's... And by the way, that's always sort of gotten short shrift for me. They're, they're arresting Jesus in the garden right before his crucifixion. Peter pulls out a dagger, chops off a guy's ear. Jesus picks it up and puts it back on the guy's head. And everybody's like, did you see anything? No, oh, Bob, I didn't see anything. Let's still arrest this. If the guy I'm arresting reattaches somebody's ear, it might give me pause. But they're, again, underseeing who Jesus is is not the accumulation of physical evidence. It's a sovereign act of God. When you're blind, you're so blind that if somebody gets their ear cut off and reattached, you still won't see Jesus. But the point is, is that Simon Peter's a hothead, and he goes from chopping off a guy's ear to moments later lying about who knowing Jesus in front of a little girl in a campfire. Jesus knows how messed up we are, and he calls us anyway. This is not the NFL draft. Jesus is not looking for a first-round draft pick. He calls us because he calls us. There's nothing in you that would commend you to Jesus. Nothing in you. Yeah, you may be smarter than the guy down the end of the aisle, but that ain't saying much. He calls us not because of anything in us, but simply because of his grace. This is the heart of the gospel. Ephesians 2 verse 4, but God. After Paul has just described that all of us are sinners, dead, objects of wrath, but God, Ephesians 2, 4, being rich in mercy because, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. So what's the ground? What's the reason? What's the motivation for Jesus making you alive? 
what is the grounds for God's rich mercy in your life? Your education, your upbringing, your background, your sensitivity to the things of God. No, you were dead. But God, who's rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us. In other words, something holy outside of you motivated God to save you. And it was his love. He loves you because he loves you. And then fourth, I don't have time. Goodness gracious, this is the best point, actually, and I'm just going to have to wrap it up here. To follow Jesus, fourthly, is to be changed by Jesus. That's Simon Peter's testimony. Hey, what's your name? Simon. Okay, you're totally going to be somebody else right now. Everything about you is about to change. And this sort of awkward encounter between Simon and Jesus in the first chapter is meant to be more than just a strange social interaction. It's a picture painted by the Holy Spirit through John the Apostle, which is a picture of salvation itself. You don't meet Jesus and add him on to the journey that you're already on. Jesus isn't a way of living. He isn't a set of ethic principles. He is the way, the truth, and the life. There's no life outside of him. He makes that which is dead alive. He changes us. That doesn't mean we are mature Christians the moment we come to faith in Jesus, but it does mean that salvation is a fundamental change of nature from death to life. 2 Corinthians 5, 17, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. And we are particularly vulnerable to missing this in the deep south where there's a Baptist church on every corner and everybody's mama used to bake bread for some fellowship circle. And we just sort of, you know, it's like being... My dad's side of the family is Italian, and I can remember my grandfather talking about his Catholic ancestry, and he spoke of it almost as if it was just an ethnic identity. It's like, I'm, I'm Italian, so therefore I'm this. That's not the message of the gospel. You're not... You're, you're we, we're dead and Jesus makes us alive. We're changed. This is what it means to follow Jesus. Do not say you cannot change. Do not say somebody else cannot change. This is what it means to come to Jesus, to be changed, to be radically changed. And to be set on a course for a trajectory of life where your life is not your own, but now we are given to God to bring glory to God so that by our process of growing, sanctification, God might use our lives as a witness to others that he uses to draw them so that they too might be changed by Jesus. Let's pray. Lord, what a passage, what a scene. We want to follow you better. Believers in this room want to follow Jesus better. We want to help others follow Jesus. And Lord, if there's anybody in this room or listening online that's not really following Jesus, that's blinded by religiosity, blinded by a works-based false gospel like I was before I heard the true gospel, Lord, open their eyes. Lord, give them 
reveal it to him, just like you did to Simon Peter. Flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven, make dead hearts beat with faith in Jesus so that we know, so that everybody that's hearing this today would know that you alone can save us by your Son who has come down and descended and died for us and rose again so that we might ascend with you forever. Lord, do that, I pray, and for the rest of us, make us humble, more passionate, more evangelistic, more worshipful followers of Jesus. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.